First Corinthians chapter one is where we turn. First Corinthians chapter one, actually chapter two, I am behind myself. Chapter two, verse one is where we turn this morning. And we've been looking at Paul's answer to the first issue that he addresses in this long, uh, second longest of his letters here in First Corinthians. And he's addressing the division, the divisiveness, the kind of the party factions going on in the church in Corinth. And he's, he really cuts to the, the issue, to the meat of the issue, and that is, who are you? What, what are you thinking about yourself that you would be tending toward divisiveness? Do you think that you're actually better than the other person or somehow Paul is better than Apollos and better than, than uh, Cephas or Peter? And, uh, well, actually, actually, Christ is better than all of us. So, uh, and, and this kind of competition, competitive spirit and, and divisiveness he's, he's trying to address. And part of the issue in Corinth is their great devotion, adherence to wisdom, uh, wisdom uh, was big in the Greek culture, and it's a Greco-Roman culture now, but uh, very much interested in knowledge and uh, and even the speculation regarding knowledge, just thinking what if this, and considered, you know, thought experiment this way, and let's go this way, and let's just think about it, let's try to figure stuff out, and not just your normal stuff like, you know, what kind of milk should you buy, but what, what, um, what are we for? Where do we come from? What is life about? Where are we going? What is death? What's the meaning of life? All these kind of big questions that, that the Greeks were very interested in knowing. And rightly so. These are big questions. And folks throughout the ages have sought uh, the answers to these things. Thankfully, to quote uh, Ken Ham from almost 10 years ago, there's a book that tells us these things. There's a book written. God has given. He's not left us as orphans. He's not left us in the dark. So we can get, go to that. That's what Paul is addressing here. But the, the issue is this book, this gospel of Christ, really runs contrary to the wisdom of the world, the values of the world, the ex expectation, the self-esteem of the world. And Paul says that's the issue. Your divisiveness, your, your rancor, your, your, your fighting with each other, it comes down to how do you view God and how do you view yourselves? And do you, are you so full of yourself that you cannot be full of God? Unless we think, oh, that, I'm, I'm so thankful that was just an issue for the, the first century uh, Corinthian church. Man, they were a mess. Fast forward 2,000 years, isn't, aren't these the same issues as pride and arrogance and, and vain glory, self-conceit, all these things that would tend toward divisiveness, uh, the falling apart of relationships, just I'm right and you're wrong and therefore you need to repent and forgive us my free. Just we're... We need the Lord. Each of us needs the Lord. We need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And that is what Paul's encouraging. He bases his argument here, here at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, with three different arguments illustrating the fact that, look, this gospel is absurd to the world, but it is life. It is power. It is the only solution you have to the issues in your life. And so he addresses this, again, to address the larger issue of division and, and rancor in the church. And he says, look, this gospel doesn't make sense to the world. It presents a crucified Christ. I mean, a crucified Christ, what's that for? How, how does that gain victory? We want these conquering kings. We want these people who, who have victory and no, no sense of, of defeat or, or disappointment. No, how can we have a crucified somebody? Not just one who was executed, but the most public, excruciating, obvious, painful, criminal type of death possible in that in that time period. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate a crucified Christ. Yes, definitely that. But also, why did he have to go to the cross? Really undercuts our sense of dignity and, and self-reliance uh, and so forth. Why did he have to die on the cross? For sinners, because we need a sacrifice. We need a substitute to pay our 
a penalty, pay our debt. Now, we could pay it ourselves, but there's no hope. There's, it's not like, oh, we pay it and we're done. Pay a fine, you're done, you're free. No, the wages of sin is death. We don't have power to resurrect ourselves, right? So we can say, okay, I paid my fine, right, God, so I can raise up myself? No, that authority is only granted to Jesus. God raised up Jesus from the dead, showing that his sacrifice for sin was acceptable. We can't do that ourselves. So both the gospel itself, a message, the plan, if you don't mind, of a crucified Christ is just foolishness, absurd to the world because of its self-reliance and self-dignity and all that. And it shows, man, we need a Savior. We need a Savior to die in our place and really undercuts pride and arrogance and, and all this foolishness that we think we're something when we're not. He addressed, secondly here, the people, that the absurdity of the gospel is it calls people who have no uh, reason to boast except in what God has done. In other words, it calls only those who can boast in God. And we saw that at the end of, of chapter 2 and realizing, wow, if anybody's going to boast, it's not going to be in yourself. It's not going to be in your heritage, your, you know, what you've done or haven't done, or connections or, or age or stage, or I'm a freedman, you're just, you're just a measly slave. No, everybody is on the same level, same uh, opportunity for salvation. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, here this morning, we will consider the preacher. The preacher, we, the absurdity of the gospel is both in its plan, its people, and in its preacher. Paul says, when I came and was ministering among you, it was not in my power. I wasn't this great orator, rhetorician. I was not this great philosopher. And by the way, I was not a very significant kind of figure. People looking at me and saying, okay, and not even taking notice of this guy over here. He's a tent maker. He's a leather worker, craftsman, and not even regarding him as somebody who's, why listen to him? What, what are his credentials? He says, look, the only reason I have any confidence in ministry is it's the power of God. It's the power of God working through me, but it's what God is doing. And so we look at this, these verses, verses 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me read it for us this morning, and we'll look at it more carefully. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superiority of word or wisdom, proclaiming to you the witness of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my word and my preaching were not in persuasive but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. These verses refer to his first ministry among them, and we looked at that rather briefly back in Acts chapter 18, recorded his, his first uh, arrival in Corinth, and hey, here's a map. Why not? Look at a second missionary journey map. You always think those maps in the back of the book, they're just, what are they for? Well, they, be, they tell the story of, of Paul's ministry there in Europe, right? His first ministry uh, out, of, out of the Middle East, out of the ancient Near East, and now he's ministering in Europe. Uh, from Troas, he went to Philippi, and you think, Especially as he referenced his idea, his his uh, status, or his he was being he was among them in weakness and in fear and in much terror or trembling or or whatever. You have to kind of retrace and revisit these different cities he was in. His major first city he was in in Philippi. Philippi Acts sixteen celebrates wonderful things, but it also kind of includes a flogging which was ouch, right? That's not an enjoyable thing. Both Paul and Silas were, were flogged and then imprisoned in stocks overnight. And by the way, why not sing hymns and praise? Let's just praise God while hurting in the ouch and in immobilized and so forth. And you can read the rest of the story. But the idea is Paul is identifying or in, in the back of his mind is this, things have not gone well for him. 
in in his ministry. Philippi was was horrible. Now, of course, that's where he met Lydia. They planted a church and it grew and so forth. And Philippi, the Philippian church, became one of the dearest fellowships or congregations that partnered with Paul for the rest of his ministry, uh, but had being flogged and imprisoned. From Philippi, he went over to Thessalonica, and you can see Thessalonica across the way in uh, in northern Greece there. And in Thess- Thessalonica, there was a mob. There was a whole riot almost around him and around the other believers there in Thessalonica. And he had to be kind of secreted away, secreted away or, or uh, carried away um, secretly by night, went to Berea. Well, Berea, same kind of thing happened, mob, uh, injury, threats to his life, and, and so forth. And he was sent away to Athens. You can see the, the journey from Berea up in the kind of the nook of the, of the um, Aegean Sea there and coming down uh, by boat mostly down to Athens where he had an experience ministering the word of God and, and teaching and preaching. But also uh, some people believed, yes, after his Acts 17 speech uh, or message or sermon, but then some just said, what? They began to mock him and, and just dismiss him out of hand because he talked about a, a resurrection. Why would anybody? How foolish would anybody be to claim a resurrection, a bodily resurrection? Why would you want to rejoin, to bring back together soul, which is so wonderful, freed finally from the bondage of of, uh, of uh, mortal flesh? Bring that back together? How how absurd! Just absolutely ridiculous. Well, so he went from Athens over to Corinth. He'd not been to Corinth before. And now he has this ministry. And if you remember, his initial ministry was in a synagogue. Acts 18 records that whole thing. And after a period of time preaching the gospel, they rejected him and blasphemed even. These are his brothers, right? Right? Ethnic brothers anyway. And so he says, okay, I'm done. I've fulfilled my duty to you. I'm going right next door. And he began teaching and he went up being there for a year and a half. So now he is has this in the back of his mind, a rather difficult experience, and he lists several different times in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians as well, a whole series of just horrible experiences he went through, ministering the gospel in various places. And so no wonder he says, look, when I was with you, I wasn't the great thing to look at or even hear, but God is working in and through me, and I find great refuge in that. We see in these verses kind of a, uh, well, the power of God in the God displayed through Paul, but other preachers as well. Unless you think, well, good grief, this sermon is all about preachers. Yes. And in a sense, we all are preachers. Do you know that each of us has an opportunity and, if you don't mind, a responsibility to proclaim the gospel? It's not just the ones who are, you know, get to stand behind the pulpit or, or on a street corner uh, proclaiming the gospel, but all of us have opportunity. So when we realize, oh, this, these verses talk about me. That talks about apostles and whatever, pastors and all those kind of things. But what about me? What about the average Christian? What's our responsibility? Well, mainly is to view ourselves as stewards. We'll see this repeated again in chapter 4, where he talks about this required of a steward to be found faithful. But realizing that we have a responsibility to honor the Lord by emptying ourselves, even as our Lord Jesus did, Philippians chapter 2, not being so reliant upon ourselves and say, boy, I'm, I'm, it's a good thing God saved me because I can do a whole lot for the kingdom of God. Really? Okay. How about God can do great things through you? You are an empty bucket. You are a clay vessel. You are a, 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 um, a nothing. You are a, a, what's the word, made out of dust. You think you can contribute to an eternal, everlasting kingdom? Not in your own power but in God's power working through you. We can rise up and have this wonderful, fruitful ministry, realizing that the power is not in us, 
or in our uh, creativity or ingenuity, intelligence, or the way that we approach a topic is not in that. Stick to the script. Read the Bible. Tell the Bible. Repeat the Bible. Just read the Bible. In fact, uh, expository teaching. You think, what's expository teaching? It's just reading the text, explaining the text, applying the text. It's, it's, it's pretty simple kind of thing. And even that's the heart of hermeneutics, right? Read, you know, read, observe, uh, interpret it, and then apply it to yourself. That's just what we're doing in a corporate way. And we can do that with one another, counseling one another, teaching one another, admonishing one another, reproving, correcting, encouraging, training, teaching. All these things are tied together, but it comes in the power of the word of God, not ourselves. You know, if we could just say, you know, I'm, I'm really a good counselor because all my, you know, whatever I say, I might just have to say jump and they just, their lives are changed forever. Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? But it's not in my power. It's not because I'm such a, a wonderful for, person or, or servant or you. It's in the power of God. So that if that is true, then our attention ought to be directing people to the Word of God. It ought to be ministering the Word of God. It ought to be attending our hearts to the Word of God. It ought to be praying that God, through His Spirit, we'll see the Spirit, first time mentioned here in 1 Corinthians, uh, here in this passage, and praying that the Spirit, the Spirit is the agent of life change. And so we look to Him. Now, one other thing about this passage, we'll look, I promise we'll look at it, is that in that first century time period, and even hundreds of years before, there was a philosopher named Aristotle. Aristotle, around uh, early, three, early being, kind of goes backwards, right? B.C., so 384 to 322 are the uh, date range of Aristotle. And he promoted rhetoric. He promoted this ability to explain and persuade people by the power of, of uh, well, actually three three different things. And we'll see them referenced here in, in Paul's uh well, we actually have seen a few of them already, but we're going to see the third one here this morning. And that is, how do you persuade people? Well, it, based, it is based on the character of the speaker. The character of the speaker. What's he about? Does he actually have care for the person uh, that he's talking with? And, and does he actually believe it himself? Does he live it? Is he hypocrite or not? So the character of the speaker. That's what we'll look at this morning. But the other two aspects of Aristotle's method of persuasion or, or rhetoric was to address the proofs or the, the logic of an argument. And that's what we saw first, right? The gospel, the, the proof, what's, what's this whole thing about? And so Aristotle, uh, I think Paul is directly responding to Aristotle's kind of main categories of persuasive speech, identified the proofs. Secondly, the passions of the audience. That was what we saw at the last part of chapter one. The, the path, passions or uh, pathos or the, the feelings, but that's kind of a, a simple way to think. What are the people about? What are they um, excited about? What, what uh, motivates them to action? And so the, the ethos, the pathos, and the logos, if you don't mind those three different ideas, ethos of the speaker, pathos of the audience, and the logos or the proofs of the argument. That's what Paul is addressing here. He is going head-to-head, toe-to-toe, mano a mano, hand-to-hand, right, with with uh, popular rhetorical thought in that first century time period. And he says, I don't use any of that stuff. I don't myself. I'm not a rhetorician. I'm even, some people describe that as an anti-rhetorician. He's so much against it. Now, we think, well, Paul, you're, you're pretty, you make a pretty good argument about things, and you talk about the faithfulness of the speaker and so forth. Yes, but I recognize, Paul says, my power, the power I have to persuade is not in myself, it's not in my life. Ultimately, it's only in Christ himself. And to give honor to Christ, which just totally makes it a laughing stock to uh, those who are trained or rhetoricians in that first century world. In any event, we see the power of God in the preacher in three different ways. The message of the preacher here in verses 1 and 2. He says, I was with you when I came among you. 
He's ministering the gospel, teaching them, when I was with you, uh, and by the way, we see five different times in these five verses an emphasis on you. He's, he's focusing, when I was with you, you know this to be true. I was with you. You saw me, you saw me in good times and bad times. You saw me over a period of 18 months. It's not like, you know, itinerant preacher come in and, and back out and we don't, what's his life like? What's his family life like? You know, how does he conduct himself? Paul says, you, you know how I was with you. You know that the power that I portrayed or, or displayed was not in myself, my ingenuity, my creativity. No, it is in Christ himself. When I came, the whole time I was with you, I was uh, preaching, or excuse me, not using, how does he say here, the, uh, the superfluity, the superabundance of uh, the words uh, of uh, word or of wisdom there. And he says, look, I didn't use that kind of uh, interesting speech or words that would be ostentatious, words that would be uh, designed to impress more than, than uh, bring clarity, uh, just big sounding kind of stuff. He, he was uh, totally against the idea of ornamenting his words or making it so that people, oh, uh, I, I see what you did there, kind of admirable speech. Um, and he would use poets, he would quote poets, he would use illustrations, analogies, all these different things, but for the purpose of clarity, not for the purpose of uh, recommending himself, oh, uh, he's, he's somebody in the know, this, he's somebody that we can listen to. It's not about that. I think of, and maybe a shameless plug, there's going to be a... a um, a dramatic presentation of the horse and his boy at the Ark here next month, isn't it, in January? And in the, the story, if you read the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia, that whole, that particular book talks about Kalorman. And Kalorman, very much given the language of the, of the Kalormian people, was very ostentatious, both in the dress and, and the behavior that they did, th- the speech especially, just very colorful, very verbose, very, very beautiful. And especially the conversation between the Tisrock and his son Rabadash. Uh, just fantastic. Just a, a great uh, expression of, of uh, this kind of pompous, ostentatious, just ornamented to the, almost you want, want to gag so much of what they're saying. And Paul says, I didn't use that. My speech was not in superiority or the excellencies or the, the high sounding, uh, prestigious kind of stuff. No. I didn't do that, both in the manner of my speech, content of my speech. I didn't present myself as somebody, you know, with flowing robes and, and uh, no, I, what did Paul look like? There's actually a description of Paul from an apocryphal New Testament book called um, Paul and Thecla, uh, the Apostle Paul and Thecla, something like that. And it gives a description of Paul, not a, not a, a handsome, you know, uh, person you'd have on your you know, Hollywood uh, A-list or something. No, he wasn't. A, wasn't significant fellow. And Paul says, that's to my benefit, actually, that you couldn't say, oh, we need to listen to Paul because he's such an impressive person. He's not. We'll see it. He comes in weakness and and all the other things. So he said, the message of my preaching was not according to the rhetoric of the world. It was totally contrary to that, not given into the the superiority, the excellencies, the the uh, nobility, not in a, in, a, in a good sense, but in a in a negative sense, uh, being self-impressed, uh, exalted, uh, kind of, again, pompous would be another uh, word, another idea to say that. He says, I didn't do that. Okay, so that comes back to us then. Do we 
become pompous in the ways that, do we become condescending and we just say, oh, I'm just talking to a pagan over there. What am I going to, you know, talking to this person doesn't even know Christ, doesn't even know God. And so we can start being all pompous and cocky and, and, and or using words, you know, we use, uh, you know, theological language and they don't understand that. You've got to bring it down to their level. Now, it's not to say that we need to uh, obfuscate or distort the truth. No, but we, we speak it in a way that they can understand, not in a, in a way that is, you know, makes us look better or and make them look foolish. Now, the goal we have is to convince people, by God's power, to believe the gospel, to embrace Christ. And so he says, my, my agenda, my uh, modus operandi was to present words that you can understand. Words and wisdom, not like the world has. I'm just proclaiming, announcing, just putting on display the witness of God, the witness of God, testimony about God. What has God done? What is What am I a witness of? Because an apostle, both the original 12 and now Paul being uh, added to that number, how, how, what, are their, what is their job? It's to give witness. Christ lived. He died. He was raised up again. He entrusted the, the message of reconciliation to me. And by the way, 2 Corinthians 5 says it's not just to the apostles, but he has made us all ambassadors of reconciliation and it's almost like which is just a tremendous thought it's almost as if and this is in the text second corinthians 5 god is making his appeal through us what we are the witnesses of god and it's as if as if god is making he's speaking through us he's talking his message through us that means we ought not get off script again we ought to think oh i, I can improve upon god's message a little bit um, and let me think hmm, how about god loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life well, is, is that true? Yes, but there's so much more that you need to fill in, not just the blanks, you need to fill in the, the greater outline points there. God loves you. Well, wait a minute. God loves you in Christ. God hates sin and he hates sinners. So what are you going to do with that? Well, repentance is kind of important. Crucified Christ is rather important. A sacrifice for sin, underkiting human achievement, merit, all this kind of thing. Paul is proclaiming the witness of God. He's announcing. He's just heralding this thing. There are different way, different words rather to describe uh, proclaiming, preaching, teaching, admonishing, all these different things. This is kind of a just one one word of many that could be used, but it is the idea of making public, just disseminating, just announcing, getting the word out to the people. And Paul did that so much in Corinth and other places he he had been in. And so he says, my message is not in superior words or wisdom. I'm just teaching the witness of God. What is God doing? Now, let me mention just in brief, and that is maybe your translation, I, I, don't, I don't know that anybody carries a translation that would have this, but it might be in yours, and that is that it talks about the mystery of God, proclaiming to you the mystery of God instead of the witness of God. You think mystery and witness, those are a whole lot of different words in English. Well, they are, but in Greek, there's one, two, three, four, four letters, difference in in the um, between witness and and mystery and suffice it to say I think witness is the correct text here and uh, you can ask me about that other time we're going to see another textual variant here in this text as well in just a moment but he says in verse 2 I determined to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus Christ and him crucified this is the witness he bears this is the testimony about God or from God he says I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified now perhaps you've heard it perhaps you've thought about this especially as we rehearsed Paul's earlier ministry in Athens chapter 17 of Acts and you think 
boy, that was a, a, a fail. That was a disappointment. You know, I, I was trying to be all uh, smart and intellectual and using, you know, quoting these these uh, Greek uh, poets and so forth and, and trying to argue with, with these, you know, major heavy hitter philosophers there on, on the, the high mountain of, of Athens. And Paul says, that didn't work. So I guess I'm going to go to plan B. And so it's almost like I determined I, I've reconsidered my whole ministry based on his failure in Athens. I don't think anything of the sort. Paul, his message in Athens was right on, right on script. Uh, in fact, there, there are a lot of things going on there. One of his, them is he's talking to Greeks. He's talking to those who don't have a, a basis in the Old Testament scriptures. And so he says he argues not from the scripture so much. I mean, he gets there. He argues from creation. He argues against uh, the unknown God, and he says, "This is, let me tell you about this unknown God. He made everything. He doesn't need us. He dwells in, in uh, a temple not made with human hands, and he has attested to you. He's proven himself uh, faithful through this man, Jesus, who was crucified, but God proved it, that he's the son, by raising from the dead. And that's as far as he got, and some people mocked, but others believed. The point is, this isn't a change of ministry model. This isn't Paul saying, boy, I, I messed up there in Athens. I'm going to do something different from here on out. Paul's ministry model has been the same consistently throughout his whole ministry. In fact, if you remember Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1, Galatians, he was, that was the first missionary journey, right? The churches of Galatia, they're in Asia Minor, and he is there ministering. And what did he say to them? Before your eyes, Christ was publicly demonstrated or, or attested to as crucified. Wait a minute. So when he says, I, I determined nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, that's the message he was preaching on the first missionary journey. He's not changing anything in his approach and his ministry and his message. He's being consistent. And he says, I am, am resolved. It's my determination to know nothing. And it's not like, Paul, you know, I thought you were a tent maker. You better know something about working with leather and stuff. Otherwise, we're going to have some refunds to issue there. It's not that. But he says, my sole focus, my single purpose is to proclaim Christ. Other things can fall by the wayside, but if I don't communicate a crucified Christ, I don't have a message. I don't have any power because the power of God is in the gospel, and part, a key part of the gospel is a crucified Christ who also is resurrected and all, all the things pertaining to the gospel message. But he, particularly in that culture, a crucifixion was just a shameful, embarrassing, absurd thing. What's, what's this all about? But he says, look, I make the main point the main point. The message of the preacher affirms the power is not in himself, but in God. In verses 3 and 4, he talks about the manner. How is, what was his manner of life, his conduct, his behavior, his, his, uh, the state of his being? He says in verse 3, I was with you. Again, the emphasis, you know, you can bear witness of how I was. My, my daily life was with you. You saw me in the morning before I had my coffee. I don't know if he's a coffee drinker. I don't know. Uh, but uh, And even late at night and working through the night and having the deadline to fulfill, whatever. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Well, that sounds like a happy fellow. That sounds like somebody you want to get to know, right? Because it, it said, right, in these, in these days, uh, you are the composite of the five people, uh, the closest five people you know, or the, or the five books that you've read. Uh, so let's associate with the weak, the fearful, and the trembling, because those are, those are quality. Those are, the peop those are people going someplace, right? Paul says, that's who I was, so that the power of God would not be in, in me, in my presentation, my demeanor, my dress, my skill. I mean, he was an artisan, um, not a slave by any means, but he was just a lower class uh, kind of worker. And yet he rejoiced in that. I come to you in weakness. I come. And the question is, did he come 
because this word usually means sickness or illness or some kind of injury or, or physical distress. So it could be that. Remember in Galatians, he talked about um, a similar kind of thing. And he says, if possible, you would have even plucked out your eyes and given to me. There may have been a, a physical malady that he had. We don't exactly know. Uh, he mentions other things about uh, the, the having this treasure in earthen vessels, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, and other things about the, the weakness or the insignificance, inferiority of his flesh. So he could be talking about a, a physical weakness. He could be talking about uh, some kind of the um, the hardships that he's faced. Remember back in, in uh, Philippi being flogged and then imprisoned back in, uh, was it I? Iconium, was that where he was? When he was stoned, I forget now, we're, I, either Antioch, well, it wasn't Antioch, Iconium, Lister, or Derby, I forget where it was that he was stoned, taken outside the city and left for dead, got up, walked back in. I mean, he's gone through a lot, and he lists all these different things uh, at various times. Hunger, thirst, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, laboring, working with our hands, all kind of difficulties that he faced. And he says, that's how I came. That's how I was with you, in weakness. And it could also reference uh, just a general dishonor that was about him. Nobody regarded him as anything special. Kind of reminds us of Jesus, maybe. Isaiah 53. He didn't have any stately form of majesty that we should look at him and say, wow, there's somebody. Didn't. And Paul's the same way. There's nothing obviously different about me. He says, I came to you in weakness uh, and in fear and trembling. A lot of times we see fear and trembling together in Scripture, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And we think, oh, that's that's how I want to be. I want to be a fearful and, and uh, you know, trembling kind of person, which kind of says, did he have Parkinson's disease? I don't know, but the tremble, tremors like that. Uh, don't know exactly. This is 2,000 years ago, and we don't have much more data about this than what he's already said. But he is just identifying fear and trembling, meaning th- there's something that, that I am experiencing that makes me unsettled, makes me uncomfortable. Uh, it, it offends my sensibilities, which, if you don't mind, the temple, the, the Jewish temple, was something that was in every respect designed to, words of one professor of mine, assault the senses. And that is both the, the, and both the Solomonic temple and the Herodian temple, the first and second temple, massive structures, white, gleaming white, and the bright Jerusalem sun, I mean, just blinds you as you come up out of the, the tunnel leading up to the Temple Mount, and, and just tall, it's the tallest structure in, in all Jerusalem in that day, and it was something, okay, you approach that, and then you start seeing the animals that are there. A lot of people, of course, but the animals, and you come inside the temple itself, and you get a little bit farther into it, and you see these animals are going to their deaths. There's a bleeding of sheep. There's, there's all this, this loud thing. There's, there's manure on the ground, there's, and, and then there's blood, so much blood. I mean, they had to have channels, uh, aqueducts, but they weren't, they weren't for carrying water. They were carrying for blood outside into the Kidron Valley and, and, and then eventually just away. But everything about that was to just bring the person down in humility, saying, we serve a risen, or we, we serve a great God. We serve a, a God who is worthy of this worship, who delights in sacrifice. And we think, why does he do that? Because it shows us that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There's no forgiveness. So we come shedding blood, bulls and goats and all this, as a hope that God will remit or forgive or pass over our sins. In so many different regards, the fear and the trembling approaching a great God, real thing in that first century time period. <coughs> Excuse me. And it was so much of Paul's approach toward ministry that he says, 
I, I do not want to be disqualified. He's going to say that in chapter 9 in his own life. And so he's very careful to have self-control and buffeting his body and so forth. But he's very clear, as he said in verse 2, on the message, the manner of the preacher, but also the message of the preacher. This is very important. I am filled with fear and trembling, not for people. I mean, what, forget what people can do to you, criticism and so forth. But what does God think? What does God think of your message? Not just from the pulpit, but in your message to your husband, to your wife, to your children, your coworkers, your neighbors. Is God on display? Are you proclaiming God? Are you with a, a fear of, of uh, and it's not a, it's a, a fear of wanting to please God. It's a de- desire to respect and honor the Lord who loved us and gave himself for us, it is a desire to show forth the power of God to salvation by preaching the gospel. And, and having this, this weakness and fear and trembling really shows we're dealing with some pretty significant issues here. This isn't just talking about the weather, talking about, you know, you ought, you ought to you think about uh, doing, you know, parting with this, go into this restaurant, you know, and when you go, make sure you get this hors d'oeuvre because it's really good. I mean, that kind of counsel, it's fine to share that kind of stuff. This is the word of God. This is the power of God and salvation. This is a significant issue. And to approach it in a sense of weakness, power is not in me, and in fear and trembling, knowing I can't do anything, but this is what I found. God has said, I'm bearing witness of God's word. And so Paul, for whatever whatever is he's referring to here, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much, not just a little, much trembling. It's, it's a significant thing. I'll mention one other thing, and that is in Acts 18. Do you remember at the beginning of his ministry in, in Corinth, he had some measure of trepidation or fear or anxiety, and it could have been, as we rehearsed there, his experience in Philippi and the other cities. But God sends a special message. Uh, verse, uh, nine, verse 9 of Acts 18, he says, The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will lay a hand on you in order to harm you, for I have many people in the city. So it could be that Paul was anxious about the response that he'd have. He didn't really. It's not an enjoyable thing to be flogged and imprisoned overnight. And so if we can avoid that, God, let's let's not do that again. But he has said so many different times. That's why I kind of hedged my thing. He has said, I'm willing to die for God. That's not an issue. It's not a question. I'm willing to lay down my life for God. Why are you? And we'll see this in Acts 20, or we could. The point is, Paul says, look, my manner was something that was self-important, self congratulatory or building myself up. No, I I humbled myself and I'm ministering to the gospel. He says in verse four, my word and my preaching. And you think, well, what's what's this about? Again, it could be the process or the the act of teaching. The the word has the idea of communicating the scriptures and the preaching, the the content or vice versa. They really can be used in those different ways. The idea is both his his process of, of proclaiming the gospel and the the content of his gospel were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and in power, of power. So he says, my word, my preaching were not in these persuasive words of wisdom. There's our second kind of textual variant going on here. Maybe some of your translations, especially if you have King James, New King James, it would talk about, in fact, how does it say in the King James? Um, enticing words of human wisdom, I think is how it says, or enticing words of man's wisdom. Uh, or in New Living, if you have New Living translation, big sounding words of man's wisdom. This idea of persuasive has this uh, has the idea of things, again, that are persuasive, things that will convince somebody to believe. He says, I'm not using the words in themselves that would 
persuade people to believe, and the manner in which I present them is not persuasive. I don't use all those rhetorical flourishes. But the, I recognize the power is in the words themselves, which is what the words direct people to, the, the witness about God, the risen Christ and so forth, crucified Christ and risen Christ. And so he says, I don't you know, ornament my speech and try, and try to use these persuasive words of wisdom, human wisdom. Now, Paul uses the word wisdom in so many different regards in these opening four chapters. Sometimes it's a negative sense, human wisdom and so forth. Sometimes it's a positive sense, the wisdom of God, the power of God uh, that he talked about at the end of chapter one. So you have to, context is very important. How does he use this term? Here he's using it rather negatively. I don't use the wisdom of the world. The word uh, of man or, or human wisdom, the word human, it's probably not in the original text, but the, it just clarifies that issue, right? Because Paul uses wisdom in so many different regards. Here he says, I'm talking about human wisdom, and it's not something I use. I didn't use that strategy. I showed my, or the strength of my preaching was in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. A demonstration. And again, we go back to Aristotle. Big idea or thought or, or goal, and one of the tools he had in rhetoric was the proof the uh, the logical inference or logical deduction uh, that that people could draw based on the the uh, the material or, or stuff that was presented, and Paul says, let me tell you about the proof of my argument. It's not based on rationality. It's not based on human reason. It's not based on you can figure this out. Let me just give you a couple of clues. You'll figure it out. It's not based on a deduction. It's based on the proclamation of God, and it, it doesn't make any sense. It assaults ourselves, our self-importance. Our I mean, this idea of total depravity, which requires a human, a, a, sacrifice, a crucified Christ, human depravity does not te- or total depravity, if you if you like prefer that term, is not saying that people are as bad as they could be. No, we're not as bad. Each person has some measure of common grace, and we're, we're not as bad as we could be. But every part of our being is tainted, affected, infiltrated by sin. And so we are totally, or maybe a better term would be entirely depraved. We're just, we, we're a mess. And it goes not just in our, our, our words or our, our conduct. It goes in our affections. What do we want out of life? It goes in our relation to relationship to God, that we are, we're angry against God, we're, we're treacherous against God, we violate, we deny, we rebel against God, and so we are just totally, entirely depraved. Another aspect of that is we can't save ourselves. You can't save yourself. It's like, hey, you're, you're sinking out in the, in the middle of the ocean, why don't you just save yourself? Why don't you jump up out of the water and save yourself? Are you stupid? Why don't you throw me a life preserver or something? Give me a, something outside of myself. I need, if you don't mind, an alien salvation. Alien meaning outside of myself. I need something. You would jump in and help me. You know, help me get out of here because I can't save myself. This is the idea of, again, total depravity that undercuts any kind of self-importance, self-achievement. Paul says, I am demonstrating. I'm proving to you, not as Aristotle would approve, but let me show you something about my words. They come in the demonstration or the proof, the confirmation of the spirit and of power. Now, we could talk about this spirit and power. A lot of times Paul uses those terms together. Uh, well, even a lot of New Testament writers use them together. Uh, when Christ was uh, performing miracles and so forth, he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those two ideas together. We see other examples of the spirit and power. I don't think, and we'll see it in chapter uh, 14, works of, of uh, miracles is another way to translate powers. I don't think he's talking about signs and wonders, or he references in Second Corinthians, the signs of an apostle were definitely 
displayed or confirmed among. I don't think he's talking about miracles or tongues or prophecy or things like that. He's going to talk about that later. This is a singular use. He says, I am talking about the spirit of uh, demonstration of the spirit and of power, not powers. If it were plural, we would usually translate it miracles. So I think he's talking about something different than these these works of the spirit, these, these um, again, the, the, the sign gifts, if you don't mind my saying that way. I think he's talking specifically about conversion. I think he's talking about specific about the Corinthians. You know this to be true. I was with you. You saw me preach the, the clear gospel, and you responded to it, and you were made alive through the Spirit. And the power of God, as he mentioned back in several times at the end of chapter 1, the power of God unto salvation. What is he talking about? Not signs and wonders and, and miraculous gifts. He's talking about conversion. That is the most significant proof of my argument, your changed life. Unless we, we think, well, that's kind of, uh, what's, so, what's so big about that? Can, have you seen people's lives changed by the power of the gospel? Have you seen that in your own self? I mean, isn't that miraculous? Isn't that much better than speaking in tongues or prophecy or, or healing of people? Because you may heal somebody, which is wonderful and great, but their body's going to go in the grave sometime. It's like, well, a lot of different examples you can think of. But have a converted soul. Do you remember... We haven't studied it yet, but you've read it, I'm sure. Second, or First Corinthians six, uh, verse nine. He says, "You do not do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God?" And he lists all kinds of uh, sins and wickedness that goes on: uh, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, all sort of nasty things. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse eleven says, "And such were some of you. Such were some of you. You bunch of no good Corinthians. I mean, what? You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God because you you're you're those people." Such were some of you. But he goes on, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. The conversion that the Corinthians experienced was proof that this gospel is the power of God. We don't need to adorn it. We don't, well, we do need to adorn it. Titus 2 talks about that, but not adorn it in, the, in an Aristotelian sense, uh, uh, ornamentation, um, uh, pomposity, and, and so forth. No, we just preach the 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 ever-loving truth, as Bodhi Balkan would say. And we, we want to have a clear presentation of the gospel. We want to make sure that, that our manner does not get in the way. We're, we're putting ourselves in the way of the message. And we think, we, we think that it all depends on how we speak or what time of day we speak or, or we need to work people up into a frenzy by a bunch of music and, and, get, and turn the lights down. We don't do that stuff. We preach the gospel. We preach the clear message, Christ crucified and him uh, uh, resurrected as well, 1 Corinthians 15. Finally, we see verse 5, which is very much a similar statement to what he said at the end of chapter 1. If anybody's going to boast, they better boast in God. And here in verse 5, he says, so that your faith, your saving faith, the faith that brings you to salvation, so that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, we don't convince people, we don't um, manipulate people, we don't try to you know, strong-arm people into the kingdom. We teach it, and they respond in faith. That is a gift of God as well. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, gift. The gift of God is, is grace, but faith also is a gift. And God is the one who gives that. Even the gift of repentance uh, comes from God. He says, so your faith would not rest in or find its, its life in human wisdom. I mean, what, what kind of foolishness is that? And again, th this passage really, again, portrays the, the distinction. It's God's word versus man's word. What are you going to take? You're going to rely upon man's word and his rhetoric and his rationality to understand something and to construct an argument that would convince people? 
it's not going to work. The power of God is not in human wisdom. It is in God's word, God's wisdom. And so you better find your faith resting in the, the power of God and the salvation, the power of God to display his own uh, glory and, and strength. One example of this, this idea of weakness and a fear and much trembling, one example of God's power made perfect in our weakness is, I mentioned this before, I'm sure, Samson. Samson, in Judges uh, chapter um, 16, I think is where that says, uh, in, it starts in, verse, in chapter 13, but then in, in chapter 16. Part of the whole issue was, Samson, where do you get your strength? Because you're not something to look at. You you don't you don't. You remember the whole thing about the Philistine lords that come to to Delilah and say, "How does he be so strong? How where's his strength come from?" Because they look at him and they don't see bulging biceps and and you know taking his shirt off and showing all of his muscles and everything and rippling rippling uh, what nothing like that. There's nothing impressive about Samson, but man, when the spirit of God comes upon him and that that phrase is repeated in uh, chapter 13, 14. 15, but in chapter 16 is the whole thing about the haircutting and, and he's imprisoned and so forth. But he, he has the Spirit of God come upon him one last time for judgment upon the Philistine lords and all the, all the people. The point is, Samson was nothing to look at in himself. But when the Spirit of God is working in and through him, wow, the power of God, the wisdom of God is on display. And that comes to us now, not we're going to be Samsons and go fight the Philistines, but we are the ones who are fighting a spiritual warfare. The weapons of a warfare are not carnal, not, not fleshly, but they are spiritual, they are eternal. And what is it? It's the Word of God, sword of the Spirit. That's what we proclaim. That's what we, we uh, demonstrate or, or announce to people. And so Paul says that really cuts to the heart of the whole issue of divisiveness. If you're nothing then what do you have against the other person? You, you, we're all servants of the Lord. We're all slaves of the Lord. Let's just get along. Let's honor Christ. Let's seek his glory. Let's proclaim him. Let's celebrate his abundant life in our lives. Let us rejoice in him. Let us boast in him. And let our faith rest in the power of Christ unto salvation, not power in our own selves. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you have taught us so many wonderful things from your word here and especially the opening chapters of First Corinthians. We pray that we would be full of Christ and not full of ourselves. We pray that we'd be full of your message and not the foolishness of, of human wisdom or uh, the, the issues that would draw people away from Christ, but only that which is uh, appropriate to celebrate Christ and his crucifixion, his death and burial and resurrection. Again, we pray that you save souls who are uh, needing a salvation that is not in themselves. We are totally depraved, and yet we are those who look to Christ for everything. We pray that we would celebrate him, especially as we have a meal together this morning, and that you would be honored in all of our fellowship. pray that you would save and sanctify for your good pleasure. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.